gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, very excited to have a return guest, uh, AI colleague, one who uh, goes to uh, greater depths of eggheadery than I am capable of, and so I am I'm delighted to have him here to broaden and deepen my own eggheadery. And I mean no, none other than Tony Mills, uh, senior fellow at AI, who um, covers a what is your portfolio? It's like, explain to people what your portfolio is. <laughs> sure. Yeah. My, my primary beat is, is science policy, sort of broadly construed. But I also write a lot about political theory and the role of expertise and democracy. And so kind of uh, in a relationship between political philosophy and theory and science. All right. So this is because I am nothing if not a master of the segue. Uh, what is the uh, role of expertise <laughs> in liberal society? Um, and where is its intersection with politics and philosophy? Seriously, like what, 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 like you recently wrote about something for the dispatch on this, you know, about when you're writing about Fukuyama and whatnot, like, um, and there's a, and I'm, I've been guilty of it from time to time over the years. I, I, I bristle at the cult of expertise. And I think there's a healthy thing in the American political tradition of being skeptical of expertise while at the same time, loving experts um on specific things um like when we start that where does that come from in the you know in the american political tradition where we are simultaneously all into technological advancement we really love practicality um pragmatism properly understood um and yet at the same time we bristle at the idea that there's somebody who can tell us how to do it their way rather than our way. Yeah. Well, so I, the, your first formulation of the question, your, your second formulation of the question sort of tees up what was going to be my answer to the first formulation of it. So, <laughs> I, you know, I think if we, if we think about, um, you know, talk a lot about the crisis of liberalism, the sort of broad political uh, crisis where we're concerned about, you know, liberal democratic regimes and, you know, both within the United States and uh, globally. Um, simultaneously, we have a crisis of scientific authority, um, which, you know, certainly uh, was heightened or exacerbated during the coronavirus crisis, but I think predates that. And in certain respects, you can trace it you know, as far back as you want, as you, I think, were kind of alluding to. And a lot of what I write about is trying to bring these two crises sort of to, to, to draw connections between them. I think in a certain sense, they are the same crisis, um, although we don't always think of them that way. Um, and so I guess it's sort of a first pass. The way I think about it is that, um, well, maybe two, two ways to think about it. One is that um, one of the issues at stake in the crisis of liberalism, the rise of populism, is the status of elites. Uh, and something that happened over the course of American history is the rise of a new kind of elite, an expert elite, um, something we could really date to uh, the late 19th century. Uh, and the integration of that expert elite into uh, the affairs of government, especially in the 20th century. Uh, and so I think in a lot of respects, the debates over liberalism, elites, and populism are very closely intertwined, the status of experts as elites. Um, and the second piece, which is related, is that um, if we think about the tradition of American 
you know, the American political tradition is rooted in an ideal of self-governance, then expertise poses an interesting challenge, uh, at least prima facie kind of challenge to that ideal. There's always been a tension between, you know, the few and the many in, in political philosophy and in, in political organizations. And there's also always been a tension between going back to Plato, uh, you know, the philosophers, the few who know, and the many uh, who don't. Um, I think what happens with the rise in the late 19th century of this kind of scientific technical elite is a peculiarly modern form of that problem, where experts who are increasingly specialized and increasingly reliant on technical skill sets uh, become necessary for the functioning of modern society, for functioning government, but also all other aspects of society. Um, and yet, because of that, that knowledge is by nature specialized and technical, uh, it precludes the many. Uh, it, it even precludes other technical experts, um, which is a you know, implication that's too infrequently recognized. Um, and so, it, it, putting it very simply, you have a challenge to the notion that we can be self-governing citizens if we're increasingly dependent, interdependent on uh, people whose expertise we don't have access to, to do governance. Uh, and so I think grappling with that problem is one of the most important things that we can, I mean, we, we are grappling with it as a sort of a matter of fact. And I think really getting clear about it and trying to think about the extent to which uh, expertise poses a problem with self-governance. And if not, you know, how those two things can be reconciled. That's something that's really urgent today. Um, okay, I have thoughts. Uh, one, um when I was talking about this, this trait of American culture, I, I, I wish I could remember the name of the general, but uh, the Revolutions podcast, which I loved, um, their, their series on the American Revolution has this story about how the Americans brought in some Hessian or German or French general to help advise the revolutionary colonial troops, uh, the revolutionary troops. And he came in with all of these modern... European professional military techniques about how to march, how to get in formation, how to do this, how to ford a river, blah, 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 blah. And I, I just remember Mike Duncan, who was the host of the thing, pointing out that at first the Americans refused to do any of it. And, and then the, the, the military, you know, liaison European guy realized that if you explain to them why they should do it, they're perfectly happy to learn the thing, right? But they would always ask, why do we need, it was like the kids in your class who say, why do we need to know this, right, about Trig? The soldiers wouldn't just respect the authority of this guy. They had to know the reasons behind um, why you do it this way and not some other way, which I always thought was just like this great little American vignette. Um, the second thing, and, 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 and I think that this is sort of, one of the things you need to grapple with for me um, is I think one of the reasons why experts are in such bad odor these days um, is that too many experts think that their expertise in X has a transitive property that allows them to be experts in Y. And, um, you know, and like my friend David French will call it, you know, complains about this with billionaires. You know, I've, 
I've created an electric car. Now let me fix racism, right? I mean, it's like one skill set does not lend itself to the other skill set and, um, or the other problem. And, but you have, or like the thing that drove me crazy during the pandemic were all the epidemiologists and public health officials who said it's too dangerous to let people go to their parents' funeral or their kid's wedding or anything like that. But by all means, congregate in huge numbers to protest racism because COVID won't infect you when you're protesting racism, right? There is this sense that people are using their expertise to give themselves permission just to boss you around. And, um, and I think that would piss off people from any country, but I think it's something uniquely infuriating for Americans about that. And, um, and so I'm just a huge champion of staying in your lane um, for most people. Uh, um, everyone has a right to voice their opinions and all that kind of stuff, but you don't have a right to say, I'm an expert in nuclear physics and therefore this is why you're wrong about Fox News, right? It just, that's the, and that's the sort of problem that we're in. Yeah, I, so I, maybe, can I answer, I want to get to the, the expert issue second. That was the last thing you asked. But the, the, yeah, because you, I realized I didn't really answer your, your piece of your question about the kind of American pragmatism, which, which your, your anecdote, the first part of that question, um, was harking back to you. So maybe just say something about that, which I think will ultimately connect up with the expertise thing. So um, I think you're right. I think there's something, there's a kind of peculiarly American tradition of uh, sort of pragmatism and, and also, you know, generalism. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, I, I have a, a, a European friend who uh, who lives in, in the States and told me that uh, he's he's Austrian. He said it was shocking to him when he moved to the United States that Americans would do things like work on their cars in their free time if they weren't car mechanics. Um, and not just work on their car, they might, you know, they do a whole host of things that, you know, in a different kind of society, you sort of, well, there are people who are experts in that. So why would, you know, why would I um, do that? I'm a software engineer, you know? Um, I think we've always had a tradition of that, right? The sort of the kind of Renaissance man type. Um, but it's interrelated with the idea of self-government, right? Because in order to be a self-governing people, you do have to be engaged in a wide range of things. You can't just defer to others on, on everything. So those things are, I think, tightly linked. And a piece of that is the sort of embrace of a kind of, you know, pragmatic approach to technology and innovation. Uh, and in a certain sense, that pulls very much in the direction of, of, of science and expertise, because, you know, we, we've always been very, um, you know, as a country, um, braced innovation and wanted technology to you know, improve our lives and so on. We are a gadget friendly people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, so I think the interesting, I mean, this goes back to the history a little bit, something changes in the late 19th century where science and technology, science really becomes integrated with lots of domains of life, especially with technology, engineering, medicine, the practical professions in a way that hadn't been true before. And so suddenly, if you want to be doing things like increasingly, um, you know, engineering or building technology, you need to have specialized scientific expertise. And the nature of science also became much more specialized. Um, the, you know, the era of the sort of gentleman astronomer uh, came to a close. Uh, and so there's a way in which, you know, by the 20th century, technical expertise, whether it's, you know, natural science or technological innovation, uh, poses a kind of challenge to self-governance in a way and to a degree that it didn't before, or at least it seems to. And there's one other aspect of this that I think is interesting, um, which is, you know, 
rival understandings of expertise to a certain extent. And this is something that I think we've kind of missed nowadays because we're just talking gen- generally about experts um, or even scientists where scientists could include, you know, Elon Musk or, you know, people studying, you know, marine biology, um, which is that, you know, there's a kind of, uh, I would describe it as a progressive notion of expertise where expertise is really about trying to use tools of science to you know, make society more efficient or more, you know, rationally based and to make politics or policy more efficient or rational. And there's also a tradition of thinking about science as a form of knowledge, which is, you know, to pursue knowledge for its own sake. And you can really see both of those elements within the scientific community. Um, and they have interesting kind of tensions and interrelations. Um, and I think sometimes those get kind of run together uh, in, in ways that kind of muddy the conversation. So I, I don't know, that's just a few different ways I might kind of get at the uh, the first part of your question about the kind of American character and its relationship to expertise. But I, I think it gets to the second piece, which is the role of experts of experts and the, and the limits of experts. So I, I would sort of break that into two. I think there's, there's an issue of epistemic limits and the question of the role that experts have in a democracy. So maybe the limits of expertise vis-a-vis other kinds of roles, um, you know, non-technical expert roles. Um, and they're, they're interrelated but distinct. So on the first piece, um, you know, it's interesting, right? The idea that there are experts, there are people that have knowledge that others don't, um, again, is a sort of challenge to a kind of thoroughgoing populism where anybody can just know anything. But one of the implications of that, if it's true, that there are people that have specialized expertise that others don't, is that it applies to experts too. Uh, and to the extent that expertise becomes more and more specialized, Experts themselves become interrelated, interdependent on other kinds of experts, right? So, you know, nuclear physicists uh, don't have any, you know, a priori, any more knowledge of, you know, evolutionary biology than anyone else. Now, they might have the kind of raw materials in order to become an expert about it, you know, because they studied a lot of math or whatever. They're familiar with science in the broad sense. They kind of have a scientific sensibility or whatever. Um, but the scientific community is itself composed of lots of really increasingly specialized areas of expertise, which means not only do experts, uh, you know, not only are non-experts dependent on experts for the things that they know, but experts themselves are interdependent. And uh, this is an important uh, point for thinking about the role of experts in political decision making and, and, and other domains. It's not just politics. Anywhere where we're dependent on experts, um, kind of being clear about those roles. And so I think one of the things that's, that happened during COVID is the kind of running together of both, where you had a lot of people. I mean, a global pandemic is is a, an interesting kind of crisis, right? It implicates everything. So nobody is an expert on all of it. It's just not possible. Uh, and But you do need lots of kinds of expertise in order to even get your hands around the problem. And so you have one danger, which is that people who you know are experts in data analytics are pontificating about uh, you know virology. Or people who are virologists are pontificating about other areas of science that they may or may not know much about, or at least any, any more than anyone else. But simultaneously, I think you have the reality and certainly the perception that scientists, experts generally are assuming uh, you know, political power or influence in a way and to a degree that's, that's democratically problematic. So that, that's a problem not you know, of, of epistemic trespassing, right? of going into another domain that's not your own in terms of knowledge. That's a, a political problem where 
experts are empowered either either through their own ambition or or because of the the fact that politicians are are happy to outsource the difficult job of politics to experts they're assuming a political role that that is really not properly their own and that i think you know that's a challenge to democratic institutions anywhere but i think it, it's one that particularly grates against modern sensibility uh, excuse me american sensibilities uh, because of that tradition that we were talking about earlier I, I don't have the sociological vocabulary to, to articulate the point well but like the problem with maybe it's like a little hegelian or something it's like the problem with a lot of american traditions is that whatever if it's a strong american tradition there's also a strong american tradition opposed to it right and so there's a there's a there's a strong American tradition of individualism. I think everybody agrees on that. There's also a really strong American tradition of anti-individualism, because you create the the thesis invites the antithesis kind of thing, right? So as much as Americans like uh, innovation, they like technical expertise, they respect technical expertise and all that kind of stuff. There's also a tradition of rejecting that kind of thing. And so, uh, and so in some ways, you know the I think back about like the end of the progressive era, you know, Herbert Hoover runs for president in 28, at least partly on the slogan of, do you want an engineer uh, as president or just a politician? Right. He had bumper stickers to that effect because back then engineering was the new hotness, right? Engineering was the solution to all of our problems. I mean, we now, when we say social engineer today, it just immediately has this negative connotation, but people don't remember that it was actually introduced as a positive term, right? It's like, it's just because of what the social engineers did with their social engineering that we now think social engineering is bad. I kind of think about like, one of the reasons why we have czars for different, you know, agencies, you know, like trying to, in the government um, is because we keep ruining the, the brand name for the previous terms we had for these things. And so like, if you look in the late 20s, are you looking in the late 20s through the early 30s, the mid 30s, front page, you know, articles in the New York Times would be about so-and-so named dictator of trade or whatever. And they don't mean it like Hitler. They mean it like what we would say, like the drug czar. They just mean, oh, it's the drug dictator. And like um, these words, they accrue, they get sticky with negative connotations because of what people do with them. and. Um, and so there's this weird, th this weird tradition about American democracy. Americans like democracy. We, we are a democratic people, but in every generation, there's this weird pull to be non-democratic. And I mean, I think part of that is baked into human nature, yada, yada, yada. That's not the point I'm getting at. I just mean like the number of Republican politicians over the, over my lifetime who said that the reason why they decided to run for office is because they think government should be run more like a business. Um, is just enormous, right? You can't run the government like a business. It's not a business. Uh, the number, the America loves the idea of generals being president. Um, but you can't run the government like it's the military because it's not the military. And so there is this weird hunger for the thing that we don't like. Um, as much as there's this weird love for the thing that we do like, I mean, like, you know, you see what I'm saying? And so like, I think this, I think there's this tension between democracy and expertise is baked into the cake and it, the pendulum is sometimes going to go one too far one way or too far another way but i don't think this is a surmountable problem i don't think that you can 
you can get the unified field theory where we just get this problem right because I think the problem is is in our hearts and our minds. Am I just rambling now? Does that make sense? No, no. I I, I think that's that's probably right. Um, I was <laughs> footnote thinking as you were talking. Czar is really not much better a term for a term. No, for right? <laughs> <laughs> but we just sort of take that as you know. As, yeah. So I, I think that there's, I think there's a lot of truth to that. That this is a kind of tension that's just ever present. And I think you're also right that in some sense the tension reflects the left-right divide, but in another sense it's within both left and right. Um, and, and I think it's that's been true for a long time. And you know we could think about it as as a kind of modern incarnation of the ancient. Uh, tension between the few and the many, and so on. We were talking about earlier, but I, I do think something really distinctive happens in in, in, in a certain point in, in history, um, which you know the progressive era is kind of the culmination of it in a certain way, where you have um, large scale you know change happening, um, professionalization you know across society, across you know sociologists refer to rationalization, where you know the sort of Older modes of social organization are changing or being replaced or displaced by new ones. The rise of a new professional class, uh, the professionalization of the professions. Um, I mentioned before, you know, the increasing importance of science for medicine, something we take for granted now that, you know, doctors, we kind of think of them as scientists or quasi scientists, but that was a real novelty and challenge. And physicians, um, many of them resisted the incursion of science into their professional domain. Um, it's a similar story about engineering. And so by the early 20th century, you have this sort of new class of scientists, professionals. Um, it's, you know, also at the same time, you have the, you know, the modern civil service um, developing. And uh, this poses a, a kind of new sort of opportunity and challenge, right? So for a lot of the social reformers, as you're indicating, they saw real opportunity to, to improve things. Um, and you know, progressivism was, was an expression of that. But I think the dangerous side of that is something that we're still living with, which was maybe the way to kind of summarize it is a kind of reflexive allergy to politics and to political institutions. And the idea that, uh, that uh, a certain understanding of, of the professions and certainly a certain understanding of science or scientific expertise could allow us to essentially sidestep um, politics or, or you know, replace political institutions with you know, pure, rational, scientific management. And again, you saw that in the private sector at the time, and you saw it in the public sector as well. Um, and I think that we're in many ways still beholden to that, that image um, and its dialectical antithesis. We're kind of still operating in that same space. And, you know, I think... On the on the right side of the aisle, you know, the, the vision may be more to to promote the kind of efficiency of the private sector and the manager and um, you know the military um, leader, the general or whatever. And on on the, the left side, it's you know public health experts or or, or whatever. Uh, but there is a similarity there, uh, and it and it, it runs in pretty obvious tension with democratic uh, political, uh, you know, a more kind of democratic political. Uh, sensibility. Um, so I don't know that we are necessarily going to resolve that, um, you know, um, but I do think that um, a starting point for trying to reconcile these things um, is rethinking the notion of expertise. I think that there's uh, built into that dichotomy often are very 
um, contestable and I would say flawed notions of expertise, um, which maybe heighten the tension that exaggerate the extent to which these two things are not um, uh, uh, reconcilable. So what are like some flawed notions of expertise? I mean, like what specifically would you mean by that? Well, so I think, um, you know, this kind of gets, COVID's maybe a good illustration of this, you know, I think. Yeah, I wanted to steer towards COVID anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, so one of the challenges, you know, so we think about kind of staying in your lane, right? Um, you could kind of sketch a picture of scientists as, you know, operating over here in a value-free, apolitical way, just pursuing truth. Uh, and then there's politics over here, um, you know, and depending on your picture of politics, it's, you know, irrational forces of self-interest or it's whatever. Um, and these are separate, you know, non-overlapping magisteria. But as a matter of fact, that's not not the way the world works at all, right? Um, all sorts of scientific and other kinds of expertise are deeply intertwined with politics. And uh, the political order is, you know, uh, increasingly intertwined and, and dependent upon um, scientific expertise and evidence. And COVID is a great example of that, you know, where we have crises that we can't even really understand or characterize without um, expertise. Um, and so because of that, we're asking experts, implicitly or not, um, to make judgments about things that go well beyond the kind of narrow area of specialized expertise that they might normally have. And we don't really have the luxury of just allowing experts to, you know, live amongst themselves and, and think great thoughts. Um, you know, we're dealing with, with complex technical questions like, you know, how to develop and, and, and deploy genetic-based diagnostic tests and develop vaccines and make decisions about, you know, to regulate or not artificial intelligence or whatever. Um, and so we have this kind of hybrid mess. But I think the, 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 the sort of positive spin on that is that in, in these environments, experts really become, they're important, but they're sort of participants among many um, in complex problems that are not narrowly technical. And so I think maybe a long-winded way of answering your question. I think one of the flaws in that kind of old progressive view of expertise is that um, we can use technical expertise to solve uh, political social problems. So the implicit idea there is that those problems are just technical problems. Um, if we just had enough expertise, if we had experts in the right political positions of influence or power, then we could solve these problems. But in fact, these are really complicated um, problems that are hybrid. They're partly technical, they're partly rooted in value disagreements and worldview conflicts. Um, and so we need experts in, the, in those circumstances. Um, and those circumstances are sort of most of the circumstances that modern politics is about. Um, but they're obviously not sufficient um, for all of the reasons that you indicated before. So I think kind of uh, a kind of humbler view of what expertise is and how it lives in a complex modern society um, is, is a first step for thinking about how, how we can situate it into democratic politics in a way that's not as conflictual. I'm torn by two competing impulses here. One, I want to go on a stem winder about how scientific expertise is the new Gnosticism. Um, but on the other hand, I want to ask you about Anthony Fauci. So let's start with Fauci. Um, uh, um, I could just, I, I could feel people switching podcasts as I talked about Gnosticism and, and scientific expertise. But, um, so I am of two, I, I have to admit, I've kind of tuned out the fight 
over Fauci at this point because the pandemic is over. And I think Fauci made a lot of mistakes. And I think he hung around too long, even though this is probably unfair, unfair in some respects to Fauci. He became such a political albatross that he probably just should have gotten out of the way earlier, even if that's unfair. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you just get, you attract so much political headache that like you got to take one for the team and sort of retreat to the sidelines. Um, but on the same time, I have a lot of sympathy for Fauci because he didn't run the CDC. I mean, the only reason he came out there was that he was that the guy from the CDC sucked and he wasn't reassuring at all. And everyone was like, Oh, where's that guy that everyone knows is like the smart doctor. Let's have him come out and say things that sound confident and reassuring. And so he did. The, that's what he was asked to do, and he did it. And now he's getting the hell beaten out of him for getting out ahead of, um, getting out ahead of the science, um, when that's exactly what he was kind of asked asked to do in the first place. And, um, but at the same time, I just think it's really, really bad when you have scientists who should know better, first of all, and I think he should know better, when they say, when you question me, you're questioning the science. Um, and you shouldn't question the science. You are borrowing authority um, in a way that is just going to piss off a lot of people needlessly. Um, anyway, I, so like, what is... What is your take on the Fauci? I don't even know. I, I honestly don't know what the latest controversy is. I see it on Twitter and I just, I move past at this point um, because the people most invented, invested in hating Fauci are, tend to be like, if you're still screaming about Fauci at this point, you're more likely to have been one of these people who's screaming about how masks are evil or that, or, or you're, you may be a small donor to Robert Kennedy Jr., or something like that. And I just, I don't have time to revisit all that stuff anymore. Um, but anyway, so how do you think the history on Fauci is going to be written if it were written accurately and fairly? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, and I think you're right. I think so the public discourse has, has maybe rightly moved on from, from some of this stuff, but the, you know, I guess, yeah, I would say a few different things. One is I think, I think you're absolutely right to, uh, to make the observation that first of all, Fauci, you know, he wasn't running the CDC. Um, he wasn't formulating policy in that sense. And, and and you can take this point even further. The CDC has a pretty limited purview in terms of the kind of policy it formulates, right? Um, it's not regulating, you know, school districts. Um, uh, it's, it, you know, it does have a domain in which it, it, it has regulatory authority, but largely what it does is it promotes, you know, guidance, um, uh, which, you know, lots of people do adopt. So I want to come back to, to, to the issue of sort of influence, but um, you could tell a kind of whole story about COVID um, that that starts from the observation that in fact, this wasn't, you know, ruled by experts at all. I mean, if you look at what was going on during COVID, first of all, a lot of the policies initially, um, like even lockdowns were really trailing uh, the behavior of people. I mean, people weren't going anywhere um, before the shutdowns happened. They were sort of self-shutting down. Um, and you know, most of the policies, as we all learned, were formulated by people at the county level, at the municipal level, at the state level. Um, you know, I would say 
most of the stuff that impinged on us on a day-to-day basis the most um, didn't emanate directly from any federal uh, authority. Um, that's why, you know, living in D.C., we were all aware of that. You can move between D.C., Maryland, and Virginia and have totally different policy regimes. Um, and and those decisions themselves, you know, they were made by politicians. You know, the county commissioner who was, you know, looking to the, the county health board or, or whatever, or to his you know, advisors, but they were, these were political decisions made at different levels of government. Um, and that's a very important fact that I think is often overlooked. Um, and actually, I wrote a piece about this not too long ago. I think if you look at the history of other epidemics, going back, you know, before the rise of this modern expert class that I was describing, the contours of epidemics look surprisingly similar, um, which is just sort of suggestive of the fact that maybe maybe the dynamics of, of these sorts of crises have less to do with expertise than we actually think. Um, you know, politicians make difficult decisions and suboptimal conditions, right? Massive crisis with lots of uncertainty. They want to promote, uh, you know, sense of security and stability. Um, you know, the quarantine as a, as a response to epidemics, it has a, you know, it's an ancient policy response and it's actually been contested usually when it's implemented. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a certain um, kind of resetting of the, uh, of the, uh, of the stage there that is important. That all said, um, there's no question that the CDC is, is enormously influential. Um, you know, it, as I said, it, it's, it formulates guidance, but that guidance is then taken often just as it is by, you know, school districts and so forth. So it's, it's very, you can be influential without having that kind of direct power. Um, and same, same goes with Fauci, right? Um, you know, he wasn't sitting there just making law or policy, um, but he, exerted an enormous kind of political influence, uh, media influence. Um, but you're right that in a sense, he was asked to do that. We, and I think sort of, you could say in a more nebulous way, like we, we all wanted that. <laughs> we got to ask for it. Um, you know, it's a crisis and there's, someone's in charge. Someone can tell us, you know, whether it's safe to go outside or not. Uh, it's no surprise then that he became a particular lightning rod, um, you know, in the kind of culture wars that ultimately consumed COVID policy, but that's true of a lot of other things too, like masks, as you mentioned. So I, I think, I think in thinking about Fauci, I, I think the right move is the one you made, right? Which is, well, put it this way: the wrong response is to say, you know, Fauci should have just, like, we should have never had, uh, you know, an expert who was public facing at all. You know, like experts should just be over here, and, and you know. And politics is over there. That's just not really possible in a crisis like that. And it's certainly not what we were demanding um, of experts. We wanted answers. We wanted uh, people to tell us what was safe and so forth. Uh, but but that general point is still separable from the specifics about the nature of that role and the way that Fauci filled it. Um, I think one of the, I, I'm kind of two minds about this, but I think something you could say uh, it's certainly an open question, is whether, you know, Fauci was public facing in the right kind of way. You know, is going on cable news day in, day out necessarily the best way for an expert in an advisory role, in a public facing role, to be doing the reassurance or, or using his expertise to, uh, you know, uh, improve political decision making. Um, in the current kind of media, cultural, political context, maybe not. Maybe that was inviting polarization. Um, and then I think there's the specifics about how he himself slotted into that role. And I think one of the things that he 
failed on more than any specifics of policy was how he presented the relationship between science and policy, uh, which kind of gets back to my earlier point, um, the sort of progressive view, you know, science is this perfectly rational thing, which can just be imposed into the political sphere and yield incontestable political decisions, uh, you know, captured in the phrase, follow the science. The best example of that is the debate over masks, where stepping back from the question of what the science says about masks, what the right political decision was, you just look at what Fauci said over time, over a surprisingly short period of time, and he wasn't the only one. Uh, things like, you know, there's no reason to wear a mask. There's no evidence to support the idea that this is providing any protection. So people shouldn't be wearing masks. And then, you know, within a matter of weeks, it's it's the opposite policy position. But that's that's not what's actually, everyone's focused on the policy change. What's, what's more significant to me is the kind of rhetoric in which the opposite policy in a short order of time was presented, um, the same kind of certitude. Well, now we've, we've done a meta-analysis and now we know for sure that masks work. But that was, neither is right, right? Um, the science in this, these domains is really complex. And there was, in fact, a disagreement, still is, in the expert community about the appropriate role of what kind of face coverings and what kind of settings. And what had really happened was a combination of things. We learned a lot more about different aspects, you know, things about the virus, we learned maybe a little more about masks, but really a different judgment call was made about the value of this intervention under the circumstances. And rather than just saying that, rather than just saying, you know, here's the best evidence we have, here's what we're trying to do, this is the best decision we can make under the circumstances. Um, so we're recommending it to, to, to politi political decision makers to make. Um, instead of saying that, what people like Fauci said was, the science shows this with certainty, and if you argue with it, you're attacking the science. Um, and that was just, you know, in my view, giving tons of ammunition uh, to people that were already distrustful and skeptical. Um, and it, it helped set in motion this really negative dialectic between kind of extreme technocratic follow the science ideologues on one side and the extreme populist skeptics on the other. Throughout that entire period, I always just kept thinking of Bill Murray in. Uh, Ghostbusters, who just tells the guy, back off, man, I'm a scientist, right? As if, like, <laughs> that's all you need to say. But I do think, you know, I don't need to drag you into punditry, but, you know, part of the, again, I, I think Fauci made mistakes, and I think he allowed himself to get, he listened to, he listened to his biggest fans too much, which I think is one of the most poisonous things you can do in public life. Um, but, uh, and I live in a neighborhood that still, still has plenty of thank you, Dr. Fauci signs up. Um, but, um, uh, the, the thing that bothers me about some of the biggest Fauci critics is they never give any sort of concession to the fact that in a, when a country was going through this massive dislocation, very nervous pandemic, economic uncertainty, all these kinds of things, the president of the United States was not at all reassuring. Right. And you have this guy who's up there who says, oh, these daily COVID briefings are getting good ratings. Well, give them to me because like that's all I care about is the good ratings. And he takes them from Pence and he turns them into these sort of dumb infomercials um, and reality show things that freaks a lot of people out. Right. And so you have, you know, Dr. Burks or whatever her name is and, you know, and Fauci and these other people being asked to be reassuring to a lot of people who are like, oh my God, you know, 
we got the guy who's supposed to be in the cope and the pilot's chair in the cockpit is tweeting like an escape monkey from a cocaine study. What are we going to do? Right. And so like, and so we got to get, you know, these, these other people had to carry a lot more load. Like if Pence had been allowed to just be the guy, like there would have been more room for Fauci and these other people to be more ambiguous, more subtle in some of their answers, I think. But, you know, anyway, my only point is that people who, who say, oh, Fauci was this horrible creature and blah, 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 blah. And he said these things that were too declarative and too categorical. And he got out ahead of the science and he changed his positions and all this kind of stuff. I was like, and do you have any of those kinds of criticisms for his boss? You know, the guy who like said, you know, the numbers get five now and it's going to go down by next week. And how, you know, oh, the bleach and the, the X, you know, and the ultraviolet light and the, will be open in the spring because that's a nice date, you know, like whatever. I mean, like it's like so many institutions, the need not to blame Trump created an imperative to blame other people 10 times as much. And I think that that's one of the things that gets kind of left out of this, this equation. Um, I think that's absolutely right. Um, And I I think, you know, if you you just step back and think about it, why, why was the head of the national Institute of allergy and infectious diseases, a division within the, the NIH, National Institutes of Health, who's you know largely responsible for for research, a research division within a biomedical research institution. Why is this guy on TV all this? Why, what is he doing in this role? Um, why was it even possible for him to assume this kind of public facing role? And the answer is exactly what you say. I mean, there was there was a vacuum, um, and it was filled, um, and you know, probably could have been filled by worse things. <laughs> um, uh, and it was, it was a vacuum created by, uh, by the lack of leadership by Trump uh, and his administration. I think there's no question about that. I mean, and Trump played this strange game where he was simultaneously in charge of this administration, including all of these agencies, um, and, and did to some extent and still does to some extent take credit for aspects of the, the COVID response, like Operation Warp Speed, the development of the vaccines. And at the same time, you know, played this role of kind of populist victim of the elites um, and in stoking skepticism and distrust of the very people that he's actually responsible for in some sense. And just more generally, I mean, that's kind of an overly elaborate characterization of what he was doing. I mean, in just more, you know, cruder sense, he just wasn't, there was no statesmanship, right? Um, and I think that you're absolutely right that had there, this was a, a moment for statesmanship and had there been that, um, it would have also allowed for a, a better understanding of the role of experts within that, um, you know, within decision making, um, rather than just seeing it as the only option. And I think that there's a real tendency, you know, we could maybe talk about this later, but I, I think what happened during COVID is a special instance of a more general phenomenon we see, which is an abdication by political decision makers. They didn't want to take responsibility for these decisions. Uh, they're controversial and they're hard and, they, and you have to run on them and so forth. It's much easier to say, well, the science says we have to do this. And if it's unpopular, you can say, well, the scientists are at fault. Uh, it's, you know, tyranny of experts. Um, there's, in fact, you know, these are political decisions. And we elect people to make political decisions, uh, to listen to experts, but also to do other things. And I think the lack of that is what, what uh, you know, made these dynamics possible to a large extent. So I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And so then you said this other thing about how uh, during, if you look back at how we responded to other pandemics, it's kind of like all within the margin of error. These things happen all the time kind of thing. I was at a, 
I'm sure he wouldn't mind me out on him, but like it's Chatham House rules. It was all supposed to be off the record. But I was at this thing recently where we had a presentation about lessons learned from COVID globally and all that kind of thing. And uh, this guy made the point that if you actually, you know, if you don't, if you turn off your, your sort of, you know, the radar that pings things that prove where you get to say, I told you so, right? If you, if you, if you kind of take out your, your partisan, if you take, if you take off your partisan blinders and you just look broadly at the global trends about how various countries responded to the pandemic, it turns out like the difference, you know, you have all these people, including some good friends of mine, you know, who are like, it will be, you know, America will be damned for a thousand years because we didn't adopt the Swedish model um, of responding to the pandemic. And, um, and then you, you still have people, I probably bump into 10 of them at Whole Foods every day who think that we should have been more like New Zealand or Australia. Right. I mean, like, um, and it turns out that if you, if you kind of like account for differences in population and demography, um, you know, Sweden had a lot of shutdowns, um, you know, and a lot of them were bottom up shutdowns and the companies just sort of closed up shop. They didn't necessarily come from an order, but they still didn't have, you know, lots of people showing up and, um, and like, you know, I mean, India had fewer deaths than us. It wasn't because they had a stricter mask regime, um, or anything like that. It's just because it's a younger population. Maybe they had a slightly boosted, uh, younger, skinnier population. And maybe they have a slightly boosted immune system because they're exposed to more things, whatever. Similarly, Africa, much younger, you know, that's the, the key to surviving COVID. And y- you look around and like the, the delta between like extreme lockdowns and extreme openness, it's actually pretty narrow as is the sort of the morbidity rate is much more narrow than people think. And there's this, there's this, and and so this actually gets us back to sort of in a nice serendipitous way, our, one of our, our, where we sort of started with some of this stuff. I mean, we might've talked about this last time you were on here. I know I talk about it all the time. One of my heroes was Seymour Martin Lipset, who's the, um, this great sociologist and and political scientist. He was actually the head of both the American Political Science Association and the American Sociological Association. Um, and uh, no silos there, right? And so anyway, one of his big things was he studied the differences between America and Canada. And one of the great things about, he's a, he always used to call it the best natural experiment in political science um, because you basically have the same genetic population, literally the same genetic population to a large extent for the most part, same language, you know, there's some French speakers up way up north, um, or in Quebec, whatever. But, um, the, but the main difference between the two populations was one was royalist or loyalist. And one was, you know, uh, ready to like go full tilt boogie for freedom and justice. And you fast forward 200 years and, you know, again, this is, this was Marty's point. He was like, you know, around the same time, both countries said, we're going to switch to the metric system. The Canadians said, okay, and started talking in that witchcraft. And, um, uh, and the Americans were like, screw you. You know, we, they're called miles. We're not going to do that. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, like you expert types, you know how to do all these conversion things. But for the most part, Americans are like, no, but we're not going to do that. Not, not just because the government told us to. And, um, and I think that there's, and so one of the things that Marty always used to say was, if you only know one country, you actually know no countries because you actually don't understand what makes your country distinct from other countries. And you can only do that in sort of a scientific method 
of comparison, right? You don't know if you've got the most unusual mouse in the world unless you compare it to other mice. And the same thing with countries. And it turns out that if you compare America's response to the pandemic to most countries that we would want to be like, right? I mean, like, obviously, we did things better than Russia um, or Sudan. I mean, I don't know what Sudan did during the pandemic, but I'm just assuming that. Um, and we did, um, we did within the margin of error, plus or minus, how mostly Europe did it, you know, and, um, we made some mistakes. We went too far one way, then we went too far another way and all that kind of stuff. But it kind of all comes out on the wash a little bit. At least that, that was his case. And he ran us through a bunch of numbers that it seemed pretty persuasive to me. I mean, what do you think of all that? I mean, I think there's, I think to a certain extent that's true. I mean, I think there's a certain point in time during the pandemic when it looked like, well, this country has really figured it out. And if only we were more like South Korea or whatever. And then over time, you know, there were, you know, that, that country might wind up having problems that we didn't have. And, and, and for all the different. It's kind of like, just to interrupt for two seconds, it kind of reminds me of the argument about cars for clunkers. I don't know if you remember this, but like back in the Obama administration, there was this cars for clunkers program where we're going to, government was going to buy up all these old cars. And all it did was it, it, it just simply delayed spending that was going to happen anyway or moved up spending that was going to happen anyway, right? There's a lot of things that happened in the podemic in different sequences, but it all, you know, it's like most people didn't get Omicron, didn't get COVID until Omicron, but then everyone got Omicron, you know, and there's lots of things that were going to happen over time, um, just maybe just in different sequences. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, 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 no. I mean, I think, again, I think there's a lot of truth to it. I think, I think obviously there are things that, that we all, for the most part, had the ability to do, uh, you know, developing vaccines, you know, a better understanding of, of how diseases operate as imperfect as things were even in 2020. Like we were in better position than, you know, Americans dealing with cholera in the 1850s, right? Um, so that, that's all true. But again, if you look in the historical sweep of things, not just at what different countries did during COVID, there are these kind of demoralizing, uh, demoralizingly, demoralizingly persistent patterns of of how people respond to epidemics, um, and so I think to a certain extent, what you say is true. Now, I think, um, I guess I would say really two things about it. One is it doesn't mean that policy doesn't matter. Um, and part of it is, again, about what the goals are, right? You know, if you remember in the early days of the pandemic with the flatten the curve, the real argument for that wasn't that we want to, uh, you know, it wasn't to arrest the, 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 the pandemic. It wasn't to prevent all illness and death. It was to slow it so that the healthcare system could absorb the, the uh, you know, the kind of ex- surge of, of cases and so forth. Um, you know, so that, that's a very... Now, the politics very quickly move beyond that discrete policy objective, but that's a sensible objective, right? And so you just like zoom out, you might say, well, people got cases, people died anyway, but like, you know, it might have had the, had the healthcare system completely, you know, been overrun and become destabilized in the first few months of the pandemic. I mean, who knows what that would have done, right? So it, that, that's a discrete policy objective that's worth kind of thinking about in its own terms. And do, do we make the right call, the wrong call? We could argue about all of that. Um, so I think, you know, policy still matters. Um, but, but the second thing, which is the broader point is, look, I mean, these are massive crises, uh, uh, pandemics, right? I mean, uh, they happen historically, but there, you know, there's no easy, uh, choices. There's no obvious answers. Um, and all of the policy decisions require trade-offs and we're not going to always agree about 
how to make those trade-offs. Um, and so even, this is the point that I've, I've tried to make, it's an unpopular one. I think there's this idea that, well, in hindsight, we're going to look back at, back at COVID and we're going to decide we made the right call or the wrong call. The fact of the matter is, that's not, that's not going to happen. Uh, because the very disagreements that drove the politics of the pandemic continue to drive our politics. And we're going to look back at the pandemic through those same lenses. I, I use this example in a piece that I wrote in the middle of the pandemic, which was a, a uh, swine flu epidemic that never materialized during the Ford administration that nobody really seems to remember. But uh, the Ford administration launched this massive vac- vaccination campaign. Uh, a lot of the modern infrastructure of, of vaccines actually dates to this. Um, this effort, um, a lot of the surveillance programs for safety and so forth. Um, I think it was 70 million Americans were immunized to the program, something like that. And then it turned out that it was a false alarm, uh, basically. And the reaction to the vaccine program was this very redolent of today. People were, you know, pointing to old people dying for the vaccine. We have to, we, the, the government is motivated by the, the health security bureaucracy to try to, buy, you know, whatever conspiratorial uh, counter reactions. Ford was politicizing science and all this stuff. Um, but what's interesting is that when experts look at that historical episode now, they still don't agree about the right, what the right response was. Because in the moment of uncertainty, what should the president have done? Should he have said, experts, you're probably wrong. There's no epidemic coming. I'm not going to do anything. Or should he have said, we're going to do all these things because the prospect of a 1918 repeat, which is what they were worried about, is so great that you know certainly worth the cost of, of a large-scale vaccination program. Um, no, was he right? I mean, we still don't agree about that, to the people at least that, that know about it, right? I think the same thing's going to happen with COVID. It's still happening with COVID. Um, and so, you know, there's a kind of mirage there that somehow, you know, we're going to settle this issue. But the fact of the matter is that these kinds of crises elicit our kind of deepest worldview conflicts. Um, and that's just the nature of them. And, you know, just on, on the kind of reaction generally, going back to the history point, um, outbreaks of infectious disease are, are uniquely frightening. If you look out through the, through the history of public health, that's always been true. Um, people panic. It's frightening. Um, and the public tends to treat diseases like this as, as inherently infectious and contagious, and they just don't want to be around people that are infected, you know, whatever the experts are saying. Um, I use the example of the 1878 yellow fever epidemic where experts were divided over the, how is this thing spread? Is it fomites or is it spread to the air? Um, the public was just like, we're, we're terrified. We're not, I'm, gonna, I'm fleeing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of Dodge. Uh, I'm going to stay at home or whatever. And this sort of dynamic sets in motion and the politicians want to find a way um, to grapple with that. And there's, there's, no, there's no good answers, right? And, and, and funny little footnote to that too is that it was, it used to be a trope, at least, is very prevalent in the late 19th and mid 20th century among public health experts, was that the public was irrational for this. That they, they would frequently, this is not, this, this, this wasn't the quiet part, this was said out loud, that um, outbreaks of infectious disease are far less important in terms of overall public health uh, and, and mortality and so forth than more mundane causes of disease and, and so forth. Um, and a lot of the experts in, in those days were quite explicit that that uh, epidemics were a political opportunity to implement reforms that they had wanted all along because the public was, you know, not entirely rationally so scared of these things. Well, finally, now we can we can show why we have to have these sanitary uh, policies and, and build these infrastructures and so on and so forth. So I think there's an extent to which these dynamics are, are kind of, you know, I don't want to say baked into the cake, but they're, they're surprisingly persistent over time. I think that that's, it's a helpful starting place for starting to, to evaluate 
how we how we dealt with COVID. That at least has to be part of the baseline, I think. One of the things that like makes how to put this, one of the things that makes uh, it possible to avoid ideological or political conflict is actual certainty, right? If we, if we know with 100% certainty where MAGA physicists and, and woke physicists alike agree an asteroid is coming to Earth uh, and it's going to hit us unless we do something, that makes it easy to actually start looking at the problem. Right. But the problem is, is that uncertainty, um, which is baked into this thing we call reality, um, is is unavoidable. Right. So like like this night, this the swine flu thing in 76, let's say the experts were tearing, telling, you know, uh, Jerry Ford, there's a 40 percent chance this is going to be like 1917. Right. I don't know if it was a 2 percent chance or a 100, you know, whatever. But like, let's just say for the example, for the sake of argument, it was a, what do you do if you're president, right? So there's a 60% chance we're going to wildly overreact to something and do stuff that we don't need to do. But there's a 40% chance that if we don't do those things, a million people are going to die. So of course you're going to go do those things, right? If you're a parent and someone tells you your kid has a 10% chance of dying from X, unless you do Y, you're going to do Y. Because people understand that lots of things in life happen one out of 10 times, right? And um, and that, but that uncertain. Other people look at those odds, and they say, "Oh, you want to do these things? You want to do these things anyway?" And you're just using this slim chance of X to be able to do this other kind of stuff, which gets which you then played into with this point about the 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 yellow fever thing about using the crisis as a terrible thing to waste logic to do the things you want to do anyway. It seems to me, go back to my asteroid and compare it to climate change. If you could actually convince people to have the certainty that a certain subset of our society has about climate change, it would be very easy compare. It should be very easy. It'd be comparatively easy to do a lot of these transition things that people want to do. But I think reasonably there are a lot of people who don't believe the certainty. Um, and, and there are even those people more like me who thinks it's a high likelihood that this stuff is, I, I think this stuff is real. I mean, the concern is real. The problem is real. But this, the, the, the really deleterious stuff is so far out that I have a different policy response to it um, than somebody who thinks we should set our heads on fire and do everything. To, you know, Greta Thunberg has a panic problem that I don't have. And, um, and so my, my point is, is that it, like certainty is like, and this is one of the problems that we get with this problem with relying on experts is we want the scientists to be certain. But then when you actually talk to actual scientists, scientists are like, eh, five out of seven chance, you know, two out of nine chance, you know, it's like, cause they don't know because shit's complicated. Um, and, <laughs> and I, I, so I think that's sort of the essence of the problem is that uncertainty becomes a Rorschach test and Rorschach tests lend themselves to ideological, ideologically divergent interpretations. Yeah, I mean, I can stand up and cheer uh, and just say yes uh, to almost everything that you just said there. I, so I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that that um, the reality is sort of, you know, there are varying degrees and kinds of uncertainty. But when we're talking about these complicated political, social, environmental issues, uncertainty is sort of endemic um, and it invites the kinds of problems that you're describing. Um, I, I, I think 
that's absolutely right. Um, I I think I guess what I would add is um, the the difficulty is that well, so uh, I think it's Roger Pilkey Jr., the political scientist, has this concept of what he calls tornado politics, right? So his idea is that you know there's always uncertainty, but in certain circumstances, you know, there's a crisis that's just you know bearing down on a community. Everybody, no one's arguing like. If a tornado is about to hit your town, you're not arguing about, you know, the government's telling me to shelter in my basement and I'm, you know, resisting the tyranny of the experts. You just band together and you deal with the crisis. And he contrasts that with what he calls abortion politics, where the issue itself, the way it's characterized as a problem or whether it is a problem, is is itself divisive and it and it draws on fundamental disagreements and worldview clashes and so forth in a way that makes even characterizing or recognizing a shared problem difficult. Uh, and I think one of the things that happened with COVID is that it kind of moved from the tornado politics into that abortion politics realm. You know, the early days of the pandemic were a lot like the tornado idea. It was like, look, I mean, we're just going to shelter in place and try to deal with this thing. And then, you know, by spring, summer of 2020, things start to get more complicated. But I think what happens is that as the, the issue sort of becomes, you know, it's not going away. Its complexities become more evident. Um, all of these other factors then then come into play, and I, I think climate is is sort of a similar is in a similar place. And I, I think the only way to deal with that is to understand political decision making and policy responses in the ways that you've described. Right, that we have to make judgment calls, and those are going to be informed by evidence. But ultimately, because we're dealing with uncertainty, we have to just make a call, and we're not always going to agree about that. And in fact, the fact of that uncertainty is going to invite the disagreement um, precisely because there's no independent standard that we can appeal to. I think the, the danger, though, is that we or the problem is that we tend not to talk about politics in those terms. Um, instead, we, you know, we ask the scientists for the certainty or the scientists themselves, um, you know, or, or at least the sort of their public facing allies or whatever um, are happy to avail themselves of epistemic certainty because it comes with authority. Uh, and so people want to be reassured and people are happy to speak with authority. And the dynamic plays out in those terms, um, which gives rise to you know this sort of dialectic that I was describing earlier. You know, just to stick with the COVID example a little bit longer, and I think you could you could make a similar argument about aspects of the climate um, debate as well. If you think about masks, if you look at what, especially, especially take the example of cloth masks, where, you know, whatever your view about masks, the science is, you know, it's complicated uh, at best. Um, you know, even the most ardent uh, kind of pro-mask people in the medical community prior to COVID weren't really promoting cloth masks. Um, that wasn't really even on the table. Cloth masks were pretty obviously is just reaching for something, you know, in in an imperfect set of conditions, right? And if you look at how experts talked about that issue amongst themselves, even in peer review publications, it's exactly as you described it. It'll be, well, look, we're learning a lot about COVID. We got mixed evidence about masks in general, but here's the thing. It's a simple, cheap, low cost health policy intervention with very few downsides. The upsides are enormous. We could be stopping you know, mass death. So obviously, we should recommend that people wear cloth masks, you know, in indoor congregate settings where there's high prevalence. But translate that into into the public discourse, that's not at all how anyone was talking about masks. Science shows X, and if you disagree, then you're an irrational nut job. Um, I think we probably would have had a healthier public discourse, and I think maybe people, you know, less polarization around things like masks, 
we just talked about about it that way from the get-go and said, look, you know, this is a trade-off. Now, expert might say low cost, few downsides. Parents of, you know, two-year-old child with you know, autism might say, well, actually, no, there are trade-offs and I don't see it that way at all. Um, and then you can have a debate. Um, whereas if you characterize it in terms of certainty, um, whatever the issue is, you, you, you can sort of foreclose that sort of uh, debate, which, you know, maybe under certain crisis circumstances is inevitable and perhaps to some degree desirable under certain, you know, delimited temporary circumstances. But as COVID became sort of more of the norm, I think again, climate where we're just living in this, this, this realm where this existential threat is out there looming, then we have to have disagreements and debates about, about the trade-offs and what we're willing to make sacrifices for. Yeah. I mean, like, and I was hardly alone. Lots of people made this point in the pandemic about how lucky we were. Because I mean, Yuval, you know, our colleague Yuval Levin was one of the guys who was tasked with actually doing pandemic um, response planning uh, for the Bush administration. And they kind of um, expected the next pandemic to be a flu. And so a lot of planning was for a flu. And then, or not, it wasn't a flu. But, like, reasonable guess that it would be a flu, um, given the avian flus that we've seen and all the rest, and swine flus and blah, blah, blah. But, like, if it had been a really, really, really bad flu and instead killed lots of young people, like lots of kids, you know, kids under five, um, I used to say all the time our politics would be so much uglier. But now I'm not so sure. I think because it gets to the certainty versus uncertainty point. You show Americans a bunch of kids dying, they are going to like fall in line and do what they need to do to protect kids, right? It was in part because of the sort of ambiguous threat of of COVID, where it kids were among the healthiest and the most vulnerable were people. And I I I am not making this argument, but there were a lot of people who did. It was like, they were going to die anyway, right? That was a huge part of the argument. They're overcounting COVID because these people, you know, you're in a home with eight comorbidities and get COVID and you die. They're going to die anyway, blah, blah, blah. It made it possible for people's ideological filters to be much more pronounced. And if you'd actually had a um, pandemic that was killing babies and little kids and toddlers and that kind of thing, um, the tolerance for a lot of the BS stuff would have just been much lower. You know, people would just been like, you know, I don't have time for that BS. You know, my kid could die. And, um, and I think that's something that is, is very hard to plan for. Cause if we're going to think the next pandemic is going to be like COVID, it may not be. And the politics of a pandemic change with who the victims are. And you could just sort of see, uh, a lot of people replaying old scripts and creating a lot of problems as a result. Yeah, I think I like to think that, that what you say is true. The reason why I'm a little skeptical is that, you know, because, you know, uncertainty is, is everywhere and, and it doesn't, it's not all the same, right? So the example that I often use is the debate over vaccines. You know, it's amazing how quickly COVID politics the, the political debates we're having during COVID went from debates over masks, where there was genuine expert disagreement with policy changes and so forth, went from that debate over that to, you know, 
corrosive skepticism about vaccines, an area of medical science that's very well established. And, uh, you know, I, early on in the pandemic, there was this idea that, you know, that, that vaccines as a policy response was kind of like the example you're giving about a pandemic that targets children. Like, on this, we're all going to agree. You know, it works. We know that vaccines work. They're great. And it's this amazing tool. It's going to solve, it's going to, you know, it's going to end the pandemic in the most sort of enthusiastic formulations of that. And of course, the opposite happened. Um, and it became highly polarized. And so I, people's capacity to sort of fasten on to uncertainty and trade-offs, because there is uncertainty and there are trade-offs, even with vaccines, there always has been. Um, their capacity to do that, I think, is is quite um, great. Um, And so, I don't know, our politics is so out of whack now that I'm not not sure that the situation would have played out that differently if the victims of COVID had been different. I'm not sure. I mean, it's obviously impossible to know, but I have some skepticism. But no, on the the point about the mask thing, about how basically it boils down to what your Jewish grandmother would say about chicken soup. It can't hurt. Right. I mean, that was the, what the scientific consensus was, is like, you know, it, there's a possibility it could really help, but there's no possibility it really hurts. Right. And I get why epidemiologists would take that position. This is a very bad analogy off the top of my head, but imagine there's some disease that for whatever reason gestates in the top of your middle finger. And one guaranteed way of making sure you don't get sick is by holding up your middle finger like you're saying F you to people as you walk around, right? <laughs> like, scientifically, we have a lot of certainty that that works, right? It keeps the blood from reaching in and they won't, won't spread and blah, blah, blah. And you only have to do it for a few weeks. But as you walk around life, you just have to be flipping the bird to everybody you see. And um, that's sort of, by bad analogy, a one way to think about masks. Masks made people really angry to wear them and really angry to see other people in them. And, you know, and like people got sick of me saying on here that I was neither pro-mask nor anti-mask. I was like anti-anti-mask and anti-pro, you know, like the mask extremism drove me crazy one way or the other. And, um, but like this gets to the point about expertise. Experts know their thing, but they don't know how their thing is going to interact with a thousand other variables. And if you had had some, first of all, just some old-fashioned politicians in the room, along with maybe some sociologists or some psychologists who would say, you know, these masks are like a middle finger in a lot of people's faces. And they don't like them. And you're going to get blowback about it. We're going to politicize something that we don't need to politicize. So maybe we should work on the messaging of this a little different than what's actually coming out of here. It would have been a better way to go. But that's the problem when you get with expertise is like they think, because their authority is so absolute, they don't need to take into account what their pro- policy proposals, how they're going to interact with the real world a lot of the time. And, um, and that creates, a, that's part of the anti-expert blowback is people telling people how to do things without any appreciation for how it's going to be received in the real world. Yeah, yeah it's the uncertainty issue again, right? I mean, the, the implications of a policy intervention, you know, the, the possibilities, levels of uncertainty just multiply, right? And this is, in my view, it's a, it's a, it's a strong, forceful argument for epistemic humility. Um, I think instead, what you often have is, especially, I think, you know, not to rag on public health experts, but there's a, there's a history of paternalism in that, in that 
profession and those fields. And it was on full display during COVID. And not it wasn't just skeptics that were critical of this aspect. The presumption was, well, if we tell people that we're not sure, then they won't listen and they won't adopt the policy intervention. And the thing with public, with public health policy interventions is they're public health tools. So kind of everybody in the relevant community has to do it. And often they won't work. Um, that's true for masks, especially if what you're talking about is trying to limit prevalence um, or, or limit, sorry, limit the spread of, of the disease. And so the presumption is, well, we have to just, you know, we have to say, we have to present, you know, air of certainty or whatever so that people will actually do it. Um, or, you know, another example was the worry that if we told people that masks might work, they're going to be a run on masks. And then, you know, the, the, the people who necessary, you know, essential workers won't be able to have access to the public, the personal protective equipment that they need. So that's that's a sort of scientific hypothesis, right? If I say X, people are going to react, you know, in way Y. What was the evidence for that? Um, you know, frequently there isn't any. It's just a prejudice. It's just an assumption. Um, and I think, you know, well, how did that work out? You know, we tried that that whole messaging scheme, and half the country, you know, didn't exactly take kindly to it. And we have a situation where. You know, people aren't wearing masks because they they associate it with medical tyranny. Um, well, how did that work out? That wasn't very good. <laughs> Just from the purely, you know, kind of instrumental perspective of wanting everyone to adopt this policy so that its benefits accrue to everybody didn't really work out so well. Um, so I, I think that it's it's a problem of, um, I think you're right. It has to do with, with um, uh, not recognizing the boundaries of one's expertise and also a kind of epistemic hubris, um, and sometimes those things wedded with paternalism. It's a it's a toxic brew, um, but I think I think, <laughs> I think you're right about that. All right, so you know, I I, I had you on because I wanted to geek out about illiberalism, and instead we just talked about experts the entire time. But we're like 15 minutes over the hour already, so I'm gonna have to have you back on, and we can talk about that that stuff another time. Um, uh, Tony Mills, thanks so much for being on. It's always great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so Tony has left the studio. Um, in fact, he left the studio a long time ago. We had a technological mishap of, um, um, wasn't a biblical proportions because it ended up working out. So it was more like of a you know apocrypha um, proportions, non pentateuch proportions. But nonetheless, uh, we were freaked out because uh, Tony's internet connection crashed and. The way the software that we use, you have to upload the audio is like recorded locally, like on your laptop or your computer, but then it is um, beamed up to the cloud. But that process got interrupted and we were afraid we just sort of lost it, which has happened to us before. Um, I, there's a somewhere out reverberating through the universe um, is an entire episode um, with Leon Aaron talking about Russia that just just vanished, just disappeared. We have no idea what happened to it. Um, so we were worried about that. So anyway, the conversation ended about five and a half hours ago. We, I'm gonna have, I think I'm going to have to have Tony back to talk about some of the things I planned on talking about because I want to talk about sort of this liberalism debate or post-liberalism debate. Um, and um, uh, But it's going to be an exciting week. Our next guest is none other than one Jack butler and we're going to do it live in studio at aei just like the old days um and then got the solo and then monday we record the big uh live um, event with me steve and chris starwalt um 
which is about sort of the cable media environment and, you know, and a good deal about Fox. Um, pretty good news environment for that. Um, and uh, I guess we never really got to scientific Gnosticism or Gnostic scientism or whatever, but maybe another time. Um, apologies for that Russian and the Pine Barrens kind of reference, and then we didn't follow up on it. Do check us out at Dispatch Podcasts on YouTube. Uh, good stuff there. We're, we're, we're building that um, part of the empire up um, in due course. And um, looking forward to seeing everybody at our Houston event later on this year. Um, these meetups are doing, you know, they, they fill up really, really fast, which tells me that we should do more of them. And uh, lastly, if you're not a Dispatch subscriber, it would be great if you could be. If you really like this podcast, if you like advisory opinions, if you like what we're trying to do, um, um, and if you think it's important in any way, it would be great if you showed it by simply becoming a member. Um, I saw an ad this morning for, uh, the ACLU, you know, and it's 20 bucks a month and you get some virtue signaling swag and allegedly you're saving, um, the constitution, all these kinds of things. And that's great. You know, I, I, I liked the old ACLU better. I had more respect for it than what it's become. But I get it. There are people who agree with what it's doing now and, and they want to be associated with it and help it. Well, if you if you agree with what we're trying to do in terms of both journalism and, you know, sort of politics and conservatism and, and all the rest, um, becoming a member is a great way to show your support for us. Um, can you guys hear my dogs howling up there? Wow. I don't know what's going on. I got to go. Um, so anyway. Uh, please become a member if you can. Um, it, it's, it's not a lot, but it, if you can afford it, which I think a lot of people can, and, um, and it means a lot to us and it helps us enormously. So with that, uh, thanks again to Tony Mills. Thank you all for listening and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.